grace, mercy, and peace to you from God, our Father, and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Last week, we heard Jesus being tempted by the devil. And one temptation which Jesus faced was when Satan had omitted a line from, the, from Psalm 91 that he had been quoting, effectively taking scripture, words of scripture out of context. And Satan still loves to put, do that same trick on us even to this day. He likes to twist words of scripture. He attempts to confuse people especially by taking things out of context. As Lutherans, we have a teaching called the perspicuity of Scripture. What this means is that we believe that the Bible is clear. It's clear enough for the average person to understand. Now, granted, there are some passages that are more obscure or hard to interpret. But should we not confess that the Holy Spirit is the clearest author of all time? That certainly is true. And therefore, we do not blame God when we do not understand something that is written in the sacred Bible. Now, often God teaches things that are clear, but then we don't want to to agree with them. We don't want to give our assent to those teachings. And so we try to muddy the waters. We try to take that which is clear and now make it unclear. We have an an example of this that we can draw from our epistle reading. In it, St. Paul is teaching us on the sixth commandment about not committing adultery. So God clearly teaches that he is the avenger to those who break this commandment. Yet many are comfortable as they break this commandment. They ignore this very clear passage they assert that they can do whatever they wish with their own bodies, and they try to make the argument that, that this is a more modern time. We, we don't have troubles having children today. Infant mortality rates are low, and therefore we don't have to observe what God teaches on the sixth commandment. But that is not so. God who made us teaches us that sexual relations are to be reserved between one man and one woman in the bonds of marriage, and everything else is sin. We cannot do as the devil did. That is, we cannot twist the word of God around to suit our own opinions or to make them match the modern trends in society. And so as God's children, we submit to God's teaching on this matter. Another issue in which we submit to God and his teaching, even if it is now unpopular in our day, has to do with the roles of men and women. On this topic, some feel that the Bible is sexist, and some have even asserted that the Bible is against women, that the church is against women, or that God himself is somehow against women. On this topic, some feel that the Bible, or, 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 and some people think that God is oppressive toward women. When Christians try to uphold this teaching of God on the distinctions between, between men and women, many are viewed as being bigoted or out of touch or downright evil. So if you go back about 60 years ago in American Christianity, most churches at that time did not ordain women. But now, today, a majority of churches ordain women, even though God's word clearly teaches that they are not to serve in the capacity as a pastor. 
God doesn't forbid women from being pastors because they're, because they're somehow unable. That's not, the, not true. In fact, many women possess the skills needed to serve in this capacity. But the reality is God has chosen to liberate women to free them from the burdens and the responsibilities of the pastoral office. And also God teaches that the church is wed to Christ our Lord. So the church is the bride and Christ is the groom, the bridegroom. And, so, and pastors, they now serve in the stead of Christ. So because Jesus is wed to his bride, the church, and because pastors serve in the stead of Christ in his name, they too are, in a sense, wed to their bride, the church. This important biblical imagery breaks down when women are ordained, for then women would be wed to their bride, the church, a type of marriage clearly forbidden by God, for it is sterile and does not produce anything. Those who feel that the Bible is against women are foisting their worldview on God's word, and they are ignoring important biblical accounts. Accounts like our Lord's resurrection, and accounts like today's gospel reading. You see, it pleased God to allow women to be the first eyewitnesses of our Lord's resurrection. If this religion suited the, the thought of the day, and if it were simply made up, then they would not have made women as the first eyewitnesses. But since this is true and that God has been involved in all that took place in Scripture, then we say that, then we know and we acknowledge and we rejoice in the reality that God has chosen these women to be the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection. God also was pleased to use the Syrophoenician woman, a foreigner in today's gospel, as perhaps the most stunning example of faith in the New Testament. Her account is engraved in Holy Scripture, and we rejoice that God has chosen to use this woman as an example for all of us today, and she serves certainly as quite the example. She is this Syrophoenician woman, a Canaanite, a foreigner, and she acknowledges who Jesus is. She goes up to him, and she calls him Lord and the son of David, and she acknowledges that he is the merciful one, that he can drive out this demon from her daughter. And that is the first way in which she serves as an example for us. She makes her request known. She didn't assume that God will already know everything that she wants and needs and that he will automatically fulfill it without her saying a thing. And in the same way, we do not make those same assumptions. So in everyday life, if you have requests, you go and you make them. You ask. You, you're used to doing this in some places. If you get sick, you don't just expect the doctor to walk in your door someday and treat you, but you make an appointment or you go to the doctor's office or you have somebody bring you there so that you can receive treatment. If you are sitting at a restaurant and you need something, you ask your server and your server brings it to you. So if you're already accustomed to asking for help in some situations, there are many others in which it is okay for you to ask. 
If you are working on a project at home and you can't do it all yourself, it's okay to ask a neighbor or a friend or a relative to help you. Don't pretend that you are too much of a bother. Or if you need a ride, perhaps an appointment, ask a neighbor, a relative, someone from church, ask a friend. Again, you are not too much of a bother. And when it comes to the church, if you need something from the church or if you need a service from the pastor, such as a visit to the sick or the homebound, to those who are hospitalized, or if you desire a communion call, ask, as the woman did in today's gospel. Now, if anyone does not need to be asked, it is Jesus. But yet Jesus still teaches us to call upon him in prayer, to make our petitions known before the Lord. We can see many examples in which he was asked to help people, and if you don't get what you're looking for, you ask again, like the woman did in today's gospel. When we pray to God and he doesn't give us what we're asking for, does this mean that we should just simply stop asking for it? Not necessarily. We sometimes pray for the same people for a year or maybe even two at a time, that God would bring healing for this person. It is perfectly fine to keep on praying. It's what God has taught us to do. He promises to hear us, and he will answer our prayers in accordance to his good and gracious will. Now, in this case, Jesus says nothing. And the disciples are asking Jesus to send her away. It could be that they're just saying, Jesus, get rid of her. We don't want her calling out after us. It could be that she, that they're actually saying, Jesus, could you just heal her and that way she's not a bother anymore? But in either case, the disciples are not righteous in their thoughts. And, but, and Jesus' response then is, I was not sent except to the lost house or lost sheep of the house of Israel. Our translation says, I was only sent to the people of Israel. That, that's not a good translation. I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel is a better way to put it. Because Jesus' point here is that he's not yet risen from the dead. His primary work before his crucifixion is among the Jews, but his work will be extended to all the earth after he rises from the dead. We even heard and that being alluded to in our Old Testament reading from Isaiah, which I'll talk about in a little bit more detail later. And Jesus, he, how does he get his word spread throughout the world? He does so through the church, which he establishes. So by saying these words, I was not sent except to the last sheep of the house of Israel, it appears that Jesus is dismissing the pleas of this woman because she is a foreigner. She's not a Jew. She's not of the house of Israel. But Jesus actually has a good reason for doing this, and it's not to dismiss her. But instead, he is, again, using her as a model example for great faith. So today when people are wronged, or when they suppose that they are wronged, their faith becomes manifest. Those who are Christian, they will forgive those who have wronged them. Those who are not Christian will begrudge those who have wronged them. But yes, of course, as Christians, we find ourselves engaging in grudges, unwanted grudges, but when we are Christian and we have those things going on, we even plead guilty of this unwanted grudge and we receive forgiveness from our Lord Jesus Christ who has taken away our sin. 
So when Jesus appears to dismiss the woman, she doesn't get angry, but instead she draws closer to Jesus. She worships him. And how much should we also do the same? When things don't quite go our way, when we know that God can do something about it, we then draw closer to him rather than sending ourselves away from her. Just as she clings to her Savior even more, so do we. She knew Jesus as the merciful one, the Savior. She knew that Jesus is the only one that could rescue her daughter from the clutches of Satan. And so she would not give up on the one that she had described as her master and Lord, the merciful one. And then Jesus responds with words that, are, that most people would be insulted by. So by not so at first, she, he doesn't respond right away. Then he seems to dismiss her as a foreigner. And now Jesus says it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Ouch. But how does she respond? Does she get all sensitive and defensive and angry and hold it against him for the rest of her life? Does she respond by calling Jesus names? Does she say, well, I knew it. This is just another fake religion and dismiss him as some sort of unnecessary religious figure? She does none of that, not even close, for she has no such sinful pride. And instead, she is filled with godly humility. Her faith is evident through her humility, for she says to Jesus, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. That's right. It is as you say, label me as you want, Lord, because you are always right. You never lie. I am a dog. And even dogs receive whatever little morsels fall from their master's table. So I will receive from you, Lord, whatever it is that you want to give me. Since you are my God, I will trust in you. And whatever is fitting, that is what I will receive. And since you have promised to hear my pleas for mercy, Lord Jesus, Lord, have mercy on me. We can certainly see in this lady great faith and humility. She refuses to give up. She would not let anything come between her and her God, not even her feelings, which obviously would have been fighting against her. And she accepts whatever names God assigns to her. In the same way, we accept the names that God assigns to us. He certainly declares that we are transgressors of God's law. He, he knows our many sins. He can tell us that we have broken every commandment. And instead of us trying to defend ourselves or prove ourselves to be innocent on our own accord, we say, yes, Lord, it is as you say. But then he also declares that we are saints. And we say, yes, Lord. He says that we are children of God. And we say, yes, Lord. He says that we are added into his family. And we say, yes, Lord. He says we are redeemed by his blood. And we say, yes, Lord. An apt description of this is what we heard in our Bible study this morning in Colossians chapter 2. Paul writes, you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, 
not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. So we would say, yes, Lord, that we were once alienated and hostile in mind. We would say, yes, Lord, we once did these evil deeds as we walked in the ways of the flesh. And then we also say, yes, Lord, you have reconciled me through your death. You now declare me to be holy and blameless and above reproach because you have credited to me the very righteousness of Jesus. Yes, Lord, through faith, I am now stable and steadfast, not shifting it from the hope of the gospel that I have heard. Now, Jesus tested the woman to show the disciples and us her faith. In this, he also shows us that faith is not just reserved for the biological descendants of Abraham. And that does clarify part of our Old Testament reading. In our day, there are many who even are, consider themselves Christian who believe that there is one way to heaven for those who are descendants of Abraham, and more, more commonly known as the Jews today, and there's another way for those who are not. In Isaiah chapter 45, verse 25, it is written, In the Lord all the offspring of Israel shall be justified. And to be justified means to be forgiven. And where there is forgiveness of sins, there is life and salvation. So some might take this passage and conclude that everyone who is a descendant of Israel, whether they believe or not, is going straight to heaven. You see, however, as I mentioned earlier, the devil loves to twist meanings of, of scripture around to confuse people. Therefore, we need to ask the question, what does this passage really mean? When the Bible says, in the Lord, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified, does it really mean that all those who hold to a certain heritage or lineage have one way to heaven and that everyone else is only saved through Christ? What we need to look at is Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We have to acknowledge Jesus' own words that he says whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. And we also have to recognize that it is not a genealogy or a lineage that gives people access to heaven, but it is through Christ alone. For even in the Old Testament, salvation only came through faith in Jesus Christ. They looked ahead to the coming Messiah, and that is how salvation was bestowed upon them, looking in faith to Jesus. And plus, what does this passage also teach? It teaches a salvation available to the entire world, earlier in our reading from Isaiah 45. And if you notice in the verse that I quoted, it says, in the Lord. So if a descendant of Israel is not in the Lord, he cannot hope to be saved. And listen also to what the scriptures speak about those who are considered offspring or children of Israel. It is written in Romans 9. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all who are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, or not all are children of Abraham because they, are, because they are his offspring, but, as it is written, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. The Bible continues. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but children of the promise are counted as offspring. And the scriptures describe you as children of promise. Therefore, you are considered to be the offspring of Abraham. You are counted as descendants of Israel, even if you cannot trace your lineage back to Abraham. You see, this all comes by faith. 
So when Abraham was told that he will have as many descendants as the sands of the seashore or the stars of the skies, he wasn't talking about, he, God wasn't telling him about his biological descendants and going down many generations, but he was talking about those who would be counted of, as of the household of faith. It was through Abraham that Christ would come. The seed would come through ultimately Abraham and then Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. That is all fulfilled in that promise given to Abraham. And as a result, you are God's chosen, you are his child, you are loved by God, and you are now counted as a child of Abraham. Now Jesus, he said to this woman that he was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. What we can say from this or see from this is that Jesus was not sent except to bring salvation, to bring salvation. And who would be added to Israel? All who hear the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. So Jesus came to take away the sins of the entire world. He paid for your sins on the cross. And so just as he healed the Syrophoenician woman's daughter, so also he has brought life to you through his own death and through his resurrection. How can you be confident of this? Because God has added you to his family through the waters of holy baptism. God has revealed his clear word to you. Remember, the scriptures are clear, the perspicuity of scripture. God's clear word is that he takes away the sin of the world in Christ. These words are sure and they are certain. God never lies and his word never fails. So Satan will continue to rage and chafe and he'll continue to tempt us, but we will continue to cling to God's true promises and in his mercies, which are new to us every morning. We cling to Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. Amen. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus to life everlasting. Amen. Mm -hmm.